Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Union Podcast. My name is Brian Pugh, and I am co-founder of the Union Movement. Uh, my wife, Bonnie, and I, we started the Union to help people find uh, wholeness and sexuality, identity, and relationships with a gospel-centered and holistic approach. So we're just so glad you joined us here today. This is the first time you've checked it out. Welcome. Uh, we just pray that today's conversation, today's interview is just life-giving for you and really draws you to the reality and beauty of God's design for all three of those areas. Um, really, at the Union, we want to help put resources in front of people that are life-giving and transformative uh, in these areas of sexuality, identity, and relationships. And so if you would be so kind to subscribe and comment and to share this and get this in front of more and more people, that would mean the world to us. But also, if you want to give to the work of the Union, you can go to our website, theunionmovement.com slash partner, and that'll take you directly to our giving platform. And all donations are completely tax deductible. Uh, deductible? You get a tax receipt for it. I think that's what I was trying to say. Anyways, uh, today I am super pumped. We get to sit down with Dr. Christopher Yuan and we talk about his book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Uh, Dr. Yuan is a theologian, is a Bible school professor, seminary professor, um, but also is a traveling speaker. And he speaks specifically on the topic of sexuality and identity. Uh, his personal story is remarkable. He found Christ as a agnostic agnostic gay man who had put his identity in his sexuality and that's where God found him and that's where God drew him to uh, faith in Christ and we get to hear that story so I encourage you if you've never really wrestled with the topics of homosexuality same-sex attraction and what that means in light of the gospel today is going to be such a great uh, such a great interview for you but also if you're a church leader who is feeling the pressure to cave into um, what we would call an affirming perspective when it comes to homosexuality. Um, Dr. Yuan just gives some great biblical evidence and biblical precedent just to give, give confidence to the historical orthodox view of Christian sexuality. So without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Christopher Yuan. All right, everyone, we are here with Dr. Christopher Yuan. Uh, Dr. Yuan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Union Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brian. Oh, it's really, it's really an honor. Like we were talking beforehand, um, before we hit record here, we got to listen to you present um, out in Chilliwack, which is just a city just nearby, nearby us. And uh, both Bonnie and I were just really deeply impacted by um, your integrity to the word, yet your compassion for people. And um, so we're so honored you join us here today. Oh man, it's, it's so good to be with you guys. Yeah. So we have to ask you right away. Are you a fan of Southwest BC? Did it win you over? And no, it's not San <laughs> was Diego. January? Was he here in January? He's here in November. Oh, I think yeah, it's it was, yeah it, whatever it was, it was cold and, and snowy, I think. Yeah. Um, that's a hard well, I, sell. I mean, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, British Columbia is, is beautiful. I love Vancouver. I mean, that's, I think, um, the, the, pe many people have actually said the best Chinese food in the world is in Vancouver, really, not in China. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that's because, saying something. Uh, yeah. Th these restaurants in Vancouver, uh, these Chinese restaurants are able to kind of pull people, uh, from China, the best chefs and, you know, from 
China and, and bring them, you know, they want to come to North America and, and Canada is easier to get into the United States. So, uh, whenever I go there, my goodness, like the Chinese food there in Vancouver I feel like is do you have a rest- delicious. Do you have a restaurant that you'd recommend? Cause I don't know that I've ever done Chinese food in Vancouver. Like downtown really? Vancouver. Well, yeah. I- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's actually downtown Vancouver. It's in, uh, wherever is that area where it's like, you go in there and you feel like you're in China and it's all Chinese signs. Like Chinatown. And, yeah. I think it's Chinatown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, no, I think it's actually not so much downtown that's outside of, you know, I, 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 I should know what, what is that area? Is it that, Richmond? That is it? Did you go to Richmond? Richmond. Yes. There we are. Yeah, yeah. You go there and it's just, it's, it, it, if you go there, if you guys go there, you will stand out. Oh, for sure. It's probably yeah. 99% all Asians, it's Chinese and, yeah. and Chinese writings is all on the signs that I can't read. And yeah. <laughs> so but that, that, I mean, almost any restaurant there. Wow. So, and you have your choice of Shanghainese or, you know, wow. Taiwanese or Cantonese or Sichuan. I mean, all the different yeah, types. Yeah, I feel like my mind's been blown. I didn't even know that there was that many types of Chinese food. That's yes. That's just blew yep. my mind right now. Wonderful. That's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, like like I said, we're so honored to have you here and we're looking forward to talking about your book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Um, but before we do that, for those of us who maybe might not be familiar with your ministry and and kind of some of your story, why don't you tell us uh, the heart and focus of your ministry? Yeah. So I, I speak on sexuality, um, and it's something that I've studied in, in Bible college and seminary, but it's something that's very personal for me as well. Uh, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wrestled with my sexual identity from a young age. I came out of the closet in my early twenties and actually backing up. I was nine years old when I first came across pornography. And that was probably the first time that I realized that I had these attractions mm. and I, kept them hidden. I came out in my early 20s, which nowadays is quite uh, later than normal. Kids are coming out in uh, their preteen years in grade school, um, which I think is much earlier than it is uh, that anyone needs to be dealing with issues of sexuality. Yeah. Uh, but that's the world pushing everything in that direction. And I came out through that, uh, I came out to my parents and they actually came to faith because of kind of in, uh, in part of, wow. of them finding out, uh, my mother came to faith first. And then my father did after that, I went in the total opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness. I'm originally from Chicago. I was going to dental school in Louisville, Kentucky at that time. And I, you know, just having fun, partying. I started doing drugs. I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor in dental school. I eventually was expelled just three months before I was received my doctorate. And so I moved from Louisville, Kentucky to Atlanta, Georgia. And I just kept doing what I knew how to do best, which is have fun. And I was partying. I was not only supply, selling drugs, but I was also supplying drugs And uh, this whole time, my parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew that I needed to know Jesus Christ. So they tried to reach out to me, love of Christ. I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta. I kicked them out. And before my dad left, he gave me his Bible. As soon as I left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash. That's how much I just despised God and his word. Sure. And it was just so obvious to my parents that I was hopeless. 
but they committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. Mm. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years, once fasted 39 days on my behalf, because she knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door, on my doorstep, 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. So I found myself in jail and I called home, just dreading making that phone call. And my mom's first words were, are you okay? Wow. And I'm just reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repent. It's not, not God's anger, not God's wrath, but God's kindness. And, and it was at that moment that God poured out his grace and drew me to himself through the words of my mom. Well, a few days after that, I was walking around the cell block, passed by this garbage can, and I thought, this is my life. I was about to pass it by, but something on top of it, the trash caught my eye. I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. Hmm. Took it back to my cell, and I began reading it. And at first, I was like, this is not good news, because it was convicting me of my sin. But it got worse. I was called to the nurse's office, and I got the news that I was HIV positive. Hmm. So a few days after that, I was I was laying in my bed all by myself, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. Someone had scribbled something, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I mean, there could have been any verse on that bed, but God used that very verse written to a a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile and rebellion, he could have a plan for me. I didn't know where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough, enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day, the next, and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols, obviously drugs, but within a few months, he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing my other idols. And there was just this one thing that I felt like I just, just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. I went to a chaplain, asked him his opinion, and to my surprise, he told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality and even gave me a book. I'm like, great. Now I can have biblical justification. I had that book in one hand, the Bible in the other, and it was just everything inside of me, everything in the world that should have agreed with that book. But it was God's indwelling Holy Spirit that convicted me Mm. that those assertions were a clear distortion of God and his word. I couldn't finish that book, gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone and I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I want to find any shred of evidence. I couldn't find any. So I was at this crossroads, either abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, and this is important, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only 
who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I knew that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true, right? But mm-hmm. we want to add to God's truth. And I added, oh, God doesn't want me to change. But I realized after reading the Bible that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity should be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay, ex-gay, or even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. And I used to think I had to become a heterosexual. I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. I I even thought, this is crazy, Bonnie and Brian. I thought that the more sexually attracted I were were lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. (laughs) But I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he would still need to flee temptation Mm -hmm. and resist sin. So heterosexuality, sure, it's the right direction. It's just not the right goal. Because think about this. God doesn't command us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. (laughs) Neither does he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. He is calling all to be holy, for I am holy. Thus, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. So God be- began working on me and he and he revealed that um, he called me to ministry while in prison. And um, I decided to apply to Moody Bible Institute. And um, I applied. And so I got out of prison. My prison was six years, but it was shortened to three. And I got out of prison. I went right from prison to Moody to Bible college um, because I didn't get my bachelor's when I went to dental school to get my doctorate. Um, then got my master's in exegesis and then my doctorate. And um, yeah, been in ministry for a couple decades already, along with my parents. We have a, a family ministry. I co-authored a book with my mother right. called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, that many Christian schools are using as a textbook. Many parents are using with their kids in grade school to talk about sexuality through our story. And then I wrote my newest book, uh, which Brian, you mentioned, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships, Shaped by God's Grand Story. Um, and super exciting. I, I think I mentioned it when I was in Chilliwack that I've been adapting that book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, uh, into a video series for parents and their teens. And that's going to be coming out um, really, really soon. Um, and um, so we're very excited about all, all that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. That's it's so exciting. Go for it. I just, I, it just struck me that you left prison and went to Bible college and I'm just imagining, (laughs) you know, telling your classmates that (laughs) was it awkward? How did it feel? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was was a big surprise when, when I answered my, my classmates questions, what did you do this summer? (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. I love it. Oh, that's incredible. That's like, Yes. Thank you, Jesus. And yeah. I and yeah. 
yes. is beautiful. Can you say the title of that book you wrote with your mom again? Yes, it's called Out of a Far Country, okay. A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So it's it's after uh, Luke 15, uh, the prodigal son parable, when he went out um, or we went into a far country. And uh, so it's a kind of a play on words. It's coming out of a far country. Wow. We'll make sure to um, yeah. put that into our show notes so that people sure. can access that for sure. as well as Amen. holy sexuality. Yeah. So... Obviously, and the, we're, and the video series, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah, we'll make sure everything's linked there for sure. We want to get this in front of people for sure. Um, like when you were writing this book, like obviously we're we're living in such an interesting time when it comes to identity, comes to sexuality, mm. comes to even like the defining of terms of these things. Is just like it's it's a very interesting time. But like, what was kind of going through your mind when you felt the call to write this book, and like, why do you see it? Um, is so necessary in our cultural moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's few issues that are more relevant and, and, and controversial and divisive than the issue of sexuality and now gender. And, you know, there's when I was working on my book, um, you know, around 20, 2016, 2015, um, I, I saw there are some books out there and there, there were a lot, you know, books focusing on where the Bible's really clear when it comes to same-sex relationships and what does God's know. Um, and there were some books that were focusing on, trying to focus on, on the more practical aspect, but I think where they sort of were falling short was they tried to jump into being pragmatic without making sure that you have the right doctrine because we need to think right before we do right. So I didn't mm -hmm. want to make that mistake. Um, but I didn't want to also just say, what is God's no, because we can't build a Christian life just on God's no. So my, the, the intent for my book was to help us to see what is also God's yes. And that's chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And though this book was written, especially from my own personal experience, you know, dealing with same-sex attractions, my goal was actually to give a very broad understanding of, of sexuality, dealing with sexual brokenness as a whole and providing uh, the correct framework. Because when we try to come up with separate responses to separate types of sexual brokenness. I think that is where we miss the mark mm. and don't when we completely lose sight of God's broader goal of holiness and sanctification through Christ. Um, and so that was really my goal to have a really robust understanding of biblical sexuality. Yeah, no, totally. Cause I, I think at least in my observation, I kind of look within church culture and, and at least over the last 30, maybe 30, 40 years, our mm. approach to um, those who would identify as homosexual or be wrestling with that, uh, those dynamics, the kind of the call is not like, hey, come to Christ. It's like, hey, can't you just sin like us? You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's yeah. we, we start to put all these different sexual sins on and we kind of grade them on a on a curve and say, mm -hmm. well, this sin is the worst sin, yet heterosexual adultery is not so bad, but mm -hmm. homosexual attraction, that's the worst, you know what I mean? And so, um, and I think that's the, that's one of the beautiful things I saw in your book is that it, it actually just cuts through all that and puts it back mm -hmm. to, like you said, the holy, perfect, beautiful design that God has for us, whether that is in singleness which is going to come with its own level of suffering, but also mm -hmm. if it's within marriage, which is also going to come with its own level of suffering and its mm -hmm. own uh, level of self-denial. Um, yes. 
you, you unpack uh, a kind of a big term in your book called theological anthropology. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Hopefully, we won't scare any listeners away with that. Yeah, yeah. But for <laughs> but for those who might not be like who may not be familiar with that term, like how do you how would you unpack that? Yeah, well, and so it's 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 actually quite simple. Even though the word sounds very very deep, um, it's anthropology is a study of humanity. But theological anthropology starts with the wrong with the right premise because the world starts with the wrong premise. There is no God. Theological anthropology is essentially the study of humanity through God's eyes. And um, because when we try to take God out of the equation, what ends up is humans trying to understand humans, which by definition is a self-study. So we need the help of someone who actually created us to help us to understand who we are. That's theological anthropology. And so if we want to better understand human sexuality, we actually need to begin with theological anthropology. So now that I've kind of explained what that is, so what does that mean specifically? Well, there's two aspects. Number one, every human being is created in the image of God. That's from Genesis 1 verse 27. But then the second important part comes two chapters later in Genesis chapter 3, through the fall, Adam and Eve fell. What was the consequence of that? Well, all of humanity are all fallen. We all have a sin nature. So those two are kind of juxtaposed to one another. There's a tension there with being created in the image of God. So good. And it's um, it gives us value and dignity and purpose. And yet we're also all fallen. Not that fallen is who we are, a part of our essence, but it's the sorted our nature. Mm -hmm. And so that understanding helps us to better understand sexuality in general, and even specifically the issue of same-sex attractions. And you saying that, I think that can help people kind of start to differentiate between who I am versus what I desire. Could you maybe talk about, um, maybe just make sure that we have a clear understanding of the differences of between the desire temptation and our sin nature. Yes. And maybe your sexual orientation, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I, if there's one thing that I think Christians, we don't, we don't fully grasp is, and, and that we're missing is that we don't really fully understand and comprehend how much the world. And unfortunately now that as the church, even Christians are confusing who we are with our sexuality. So that's why we call it a sexual identity. But since when do we make any type of attraction, whether sexual or romantic or any attraction or feeling or desire or even thought, when do we make that who we are? I'm not arguing the fact that sexual desires are unchosen they're also uh, persistent often in many cases, especially for men, for women, there's a little bit more fluidity. But regardless, no, no matter how persistent or how long we've had an unchosen desire, it should never be who you are. Sexuality is not who we are, but it's how we are. And then understanding, you know, as, as you brought up, Bonnie, this, this distinction between attractions and then temptations and desires, because there's, there's been this kind of debate and conversation among, among Christendom about, um, the morality of same-sex attractions. And there are people who kind of land on, on either. And even right now we have listeners who probably will land and say, well, no, there, there's, it's not same-sex attractions are not sinful. Just, you just don't act on it. And there are others be like, no, it is sin. 
Um, and, and I think the issue, and when you hear the arguments, actually, they're, they're not, uh, there's, there's points to both sides. And here's the reason why it's because we're both, both sides are not defining their terms. Mm. The interesting thing is attraction is not a word found anywhere in the Bible. And attraction is, can be, it's a pretty broad semantic range. It's a pretty broad definition. So the temptation could be considered an attraction. A desire can be considered a temptation, uh, an attraction. And so I, I, in my book, I try to avoid that error of not defining our terms. And, you know, so if, if, if the readers actually go on Amazon and actually look at the cover of my book, it's black and white. And that was very intentional because we're living in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just yes. 50 yeah, right. Right, where everything's gray. <laughs> so I wanted to be clear that, that God's, and I wanted to communicate that God's truth on biblical sexuality is not gray. It's black and white. And, and so this clarity, I, I don't want to use terms that then cause confusion. And I think when we're trying to discuss what is right or wrong, what is moral, what is sin, what is not, you know, what is immoral, et cetera, then when we're trying to use biblical categories, which is sin, morality, and but then trying to use terminology that's not found in the Bible, that's mm-hmm. when we kind of, we're, we're all over the place. So I try to stick to, to with biblical categories, the category of temptation and the category of sin, of desire. Temptation in and of itself is not sin per se, but it quickly leads to sin. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus was tempted in every way, but he's without sin. And it it talks about, uh, scripture talks about then desire. Um, Desire, we have this um, understanding sometimes that Desire isn't sin until it turns into lust. Well, the Bible actually uses the same Greek word, the same Hebrew word for desire and lust. It's the same word. So it's not Mm -hmm. that, at least in the Bible, it's not that desire somehow turns into lust. Wrongly ordered desire is lust. Mm. So the Greek word epithumia in Greek can be translated as desire or it can be translated as lust, depending on context. If it's a wrongly des- you know, ordered epithumia or desire, then, we, then that's actual already sin. So it's differentiating between the difference. You know, we are tempted. Being tempted is not sin, but when we give in to temptation, that can turn into quickly into sinful desire and then behavior. So having that mindset is really helpful. So therefore, we need to be very careful about our desires. Um, you know, it's if if I was a married man, it would not be right for me to have sexual or romantic desires for another woman. I need to resist those now. If and and stop those now. If I'm tempted, like if a thought comes in my mind, I'm like, where did that come from? And that you know that happens to all of us. But we need to resist those temptations and not allow those temptations to fall in, you know, that we don't fall into temptation and that turns into sin. Right. So then in a practical way, you know, I'm thinking maybe for a listener who is saying, I, I feel desire at times. I don't want to say same sex attraction because of you just saying like attraction is not a biblical word. I have same sex (laughs) desire. Is that what we'd say? I sometimes Mm -hmm. deal with same sex temptation. Then how, Mm -hmm. like, then what you're saying there of taking those thoughts captive in the same exactly, way that a married yeah. ma- married man would or a married woman would 
Or yes. I think of me as a single woman, how many times I would take captive thoughts. It's like, no, I'm not married mm-hmm. to that man. I'm not going to think about him. And you, mm-hmm. it's like you're wrestling on the inside. But my wrestle, I, I'm like, am I getting to a question? I'm more just maybe I'm processing this out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but how, how would I encourage or, or talk yeah. to you? So I would say, um, so it's let's just say throughout the day, um, you know, we we could get sometimes bombarded or sometimes, you know, we'll get this stray thought that comes into our mind and we're like, where did that come from? That's, that's kind of a good example of a temptation, or you could be just walking, you know, to the bus uh, or on a bus. And there's a really attractive person that sits next to you. Well, you couldn't help that the person, you know, was sitting across from you or whatever. Um, that would be a temptation. Now, when does it turn into sin? Well, it's when we begin entertaining that thought or fantasizing about what I will do with that person. Um, And, you know, even it could be um, if my best friend, his wife, if I started thinking about even the romantic desires can be sinful as well. If I'm thinking, you know, oh, it'd be so nice if I get to see her and spend time with her alone, you know, that's Mm -hmm. someone else's wife. I should not be having those type of thoughts or desires that I need to resist. That's when you begin dwelling on it. That would be that sinful desire, but that immediate kind of thought that just pops in our mind that comes from nowhere, that would be a temptation. And then we need to say, okay, I need to kind of, I need to resist that and not dwell on that, not let that turn into a sinful desire. And it's not easy, which is why God, in his loving kindness, provided us a comforter, uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit that then empowers us to be able to say no and resist those temptations. And so it's, it's it, you know, we need to be continuously renewed uh, daily in the Lord and, 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 and making sure that we're, we're being kind of fostering that intimacy with Christ daily because we need it daily mm-hmm. because we're going to be tempted daily. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder too, like, I, I'd love to hear your perspective. Like, cause well, I feel like I have a few questions, but like one question is like, often it comes up of like, is this a nature problem? Or at least let's even just say within the world, is this a nature problem or is this a nurture problem? And I, and mm. I know even within, within the church, we've, kind of jumped on both sides of this, you know what I mean? But like, how do we, maybe here's my question is like for somebody who hears like, Hey, Jesus loves me and doesn't, you know, loves me as I am. I don't need to change all these kind of things that maybe we're like, we're well-meaning and saying they're like, Hey, Jesus loves you just as you are come just as you are. And sometimes people in their sinful nature go, yeah, I love me too. So I don't need to change. You know what I mean? And God's (laughs) not going to ask me to change. And yes. yet this kind of this ball of thought in the nature versus nurture is kind of ingrained mm-hmm. within their thinking. How do we how do we bring the gospel into that Amen. that conversation and how do we bring the gospel into addressing that maybe incorrect perspective? Yeah, and 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 definitely God loves us just as we are, but he loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us as we are. Yes. And um so we forget that second part. Um but I would say um, you know, with a nature or nurture, so I'm going to first start with a kind of scientific before I go to the theological, um, and biblical. Uh, so the science out there, it's, it's a myth to say that it's already, 
um, conclusive that science has proven that people are born gay or that it's nature or even nurture, you know, whatever it is. Uh, it's, there's not a single test that has been replicated. So nothing's been confirmed yet. It's most likely multifaceted. It is so complex. I mean, as we all know, Mm -hmm. sexuality is very complex. And so it would make sense that causation would also be very, very complex. So it's likely, you know, genetics, but not a lot. Uh, The most recent study done in just 2019 did a huge study and they they were guessing that it's eight to twenty five percent. I think twenty five percent is way high. Yeah. And they did a whole vast, vast, vast study of tens of thousands of of individuals that they had access to their gene pool, um, or, or kind of their, their DNA, and and it was kind of in um, those hereditary things, which I don't, I won't get into that. But uh, they have all this kind of data that they have to look at, and they. Um, they could only find just a handful of markers that they believe only if added up was less than 1% mm. of causation. So we see it's, it's yes, I think genetics could play a role, um, but it's nowhere near over 50% or not, not even close to a hundred percent. Um, but it's, 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 it's not very, very significant. There's a lot of other factors. It could be hormonal. It could be environmental, but I'm going to go to the kind of more biblical theological because that sometimes throws us off is, Oh, could it be biological? Could it be genetic? Does that throw our theology off? No. And here's why, because we begin with theological anthropology. Yes. We're creating God's image. That's great. That's wonderful. We have value meaning, mm-hmm. but every human being is fallen. We all have a sin nature. So what does that mean? At what point do we get a sin nature from birth, from conception? Um, we are all, uh, from birth sinners. And was that a choice? No. Uh, you know, how long, you know, people say, well, I've had this for as long as I remember. I didn't choose this. Well, no one chose to have a sin nature. We've had a sin nature for as long as I remember that doesn't make it right. Yes, so that's yeah. helpful for us to think that through, but what, to what extent has the fall affected us? Is it only um, emotionally or spiritually. No, the Bible talks about how, um, all of creation groans, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're waiting for our redemption. Why? Because the fall has impact, has impacted everything, not to make it the worst that you could ever be, but everything, even our best works are tainted in some way by pride or selfishness, etc. So, um, and, and our even our DNA has been impacted by our by the fall by our sin nature. I mean, if there was no death before the fall, yeah. that means that there was no diseases before the fall. That means there was no genetic diseases before the fall. So, because of the fall, um, even our genes, our DNA has been distorted. Which again, which is why all of creation groans, including our DNA and our genes, will be re- uh, redeemed. So, I, I think the answer is: What's the root cause? What is the cause? Our sin nature, mm-hmm. and as such, that has implications in both nature and nurture. So it's both, but those are secondary to the primary cause, which is our sin nature, which then goes to helps us to answer as um, someone might say, well, God made me this way, et cetera. 
Um, well, God also made us sinners. Uh, but Jesus says, you know, though you think you're more, you're born gay, you must be born yes. again. Yeah. Absolutely. So you may think you're born an alcoholic. You must be born again. You must yeah. be born, you know, whatever it is, you must be born again. Yeah. And I, and I think sometimes we've taken the doctrine of regeneration and made it this kind of just like poetic language, like where Paul says, like you're a new <laughs> creation in Christ. It's like, oh, that's just yeah. imagery, but really you're just going to have be the same. No, it's like, we actually get a new heart, you know, it doesn't Amen. mean you're perfect, That's but right. you get, you get a That's new right. direction for your desires and a new pathway. And, and yeah, I guess like the compass of your heart is, is set towards righteousness now. Right. Amen. And, uh, and Amen. progressively too, we grow, we grow in the Christ-like character as well. But I think that's what, like, as a pastor, as a leader, I just go like this, this is so important, you know, as somebody who wants people to come to Christ and experience the reality of what Jesus does, it can't just be hypothetical or imagery or poetic language. Like this is the power of the gospel of Jesus, you know? Amen. And, uh, and so I I think it's so important you, you, you know, you bring that point up is because this is what we're calling, not just homosexual, same-sex attracted transgender people to, we're calling all people to repentance and a new life, a new beginning, a new Genesis, you know, in Christ. So, um, so important, so important. Um, obviously with a lot of what we do, at the union, we're wanting to equip leaders. And I know like for mm. pastors and leaders, um, it's a difficult time right now, like trying to pastor a church, especially when there's a strong mm. movement and pressure towards being affirming um, and, and not, and not using a biblical language when it comes to like what mm. that might mean. It's like affirming instead of like being patient and kind and gentle towards those who might sin differently than you do, you know, right. It's, yes. it's, um, it's like, you no, know, you must believe that this is okay and support it in mm. all ways, shapes and forms and cross scriptures out. That would, you know, that would be socially unacceptable. Um, mm-hmm. what would you say to pastors right now that are feeling that pressure to compromise on, on a biblical perspective? Um, not just in this area, I think there's a lot of pressure to compromise and, and a lot of biblical precedent, but what would you say to encourage pastors in this realm? Well, I think, um, one of my favorite quotes of all time, uh, besides anything out of the, out of scripture, uh, comes from, uh, a, a 19th century pastor, Charles Spurgeon. And, um, he said that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes as pastors um, and church leaders, you want, you try so hard to be loving that you end up making love an end in itself. Mm-hmm. Compassion and grace is never an end in itself. It's a means to an end. Of course, should we be loving and compassionate and gracious? Yes, but that's, that is not the end. And, and often I hear that, that pastors, they, they're, they're very loving. Like, for example, people, and, 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 and maybe some of the people listening right now might be, you know, have said this before, and I've said this before, you know, we, we just need to love. And, and I've, I've thought about that, especially lately in, in, in our, mm-hmm. See, 20 years ago, um, I think the church had a tendency, evangelical church had a tendency to be truth at the expense of grace. Yes. What I'm seeing right now more than more and more are, are evangelical churches. I'm not talking about 
the very, very progressive liberal churches. I'm even talking about evangelical churches that are yeah. trying to be now grace at the expense of truth. Yeah. That's not how Jesus came. He came full of grace and full of truth. So should we be gracious, loving, compassionate? Of course, but it's not just. It's love people and point them to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That actually is the most loving thing to do. Um, so I, I would encourage pastors uh, to make sure that we lift high the gospel of Jesus Christ um, and that that our end for everyone is uh, salvation and sanctification through Jesus Christ. That has to always be the end goal for everyone. Not just, well, let's maintain the relationship. Let's just keep, you know, let's just build bridges because if we're building bridges to, to, to each other, well, I can't save you. No, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's we're if we're going to, if we're going to be talking about the bridge analogy, there's only one way that bridge should go. That's from humanity to God, and we can't build that bridge. That bridge that's has so already been built, and Jesus already built that bridge. So we're not bridge builders. Um, we're just pe- pointing people to the bridge, and that yeah. bridge has a name, and his name is Jesus. So I think that's what we need to re- remind people of. And this is what I often see with churches and and pastors and church leaders that often are beginning to compromise because I I'm more and more convinced that the enemy of the the modern church today is the temptation to compromise. Mm-hmm. I, I see that more and more and and I want to exhort uh, pastors and church leaders um, compromise began in the garden and is yeah. continued. Um, in the United States, you know, we call the very progressive kind of liberal churches that have walked away 50 years ago. We call that mainline denominations. Well, what I'm seeing, and we're just repeating history, what happened 50, 60 years ago with these churches. And and I'm sure in Canada, the same way, you know, some of the big churches, you know, the Canada, whatever church of whatever, uh, they're, they walked away 40, 50 years ago. And this is the issue, not even though it seemed like it was over sexuality, that's not what the main issue was. The main issue was the authority of the word of God. Absolutely. And once even now churches that will say and even argue and, and mainline denominations to the same thing, they argue and argue and argue. And they say, I have a high view of scripture. I love scripture. When you actually look at how they handle scripture, they don't. Simply saying you have a high view of scripture does not guarantee you do. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are compromising, if you press them and actually look at their hermeneutic, their way and their principles of interpretation, how they handle scripture, it really is not a high view of scripture. God's word is perfect. It is infallible, unfailing. It has no errors. Every jot and tittle, uh, that's Jesus' own words. And I want to have the same view of scripture that Jesus does. Yeah. That's so good. And I think that the loss of the authority of scripture in their heart is usually linked to a fear of man or a fear of the crowd, which makes me think of the Pharisees who memorized everything. They were like, we know the word. We are the experts in the law. And it's like, right. and yet they wouldn't open their mouth because they feared the crowd. Mm-hmm. And I, I think right. when you say that, you know, there is that temptation to compromise because you know what the crowd might do to you. And that's yes. where we can, I love that Jesus, he actually mm-hmm. stood in the fullness of truth and grace to the point Amen. of death where he said, I, w- I won't relent on what is true. I am the son mm-hmm. of God, <laughs> you know, Amen. Amen. Uh, 
Yeah. So maybe in closing in our conversation here, um, you know, most of us know someone or multiple people, Mm. whether it's a relative or a friend who would identify as gay. Um, Mm. What would be some, you know, some things that they could do to and maybe what they should not do as they Mm. walk with them? Yeah, I would say, you know, a few things. I think it's important for us, um, you know, don't don't start with their sin um, because when when an individual who identifies as gay, they don't use that term to simply mean I have same sex attractions, the world. And and, and there's kind of a, there there's a, a sub there's a small group of people who are trying to kind of reappropriate that word, uh, kind of a gay celibate Christian movement, which I think um, they're, we can't redefine words when the world uses a a word in a certain way, which is gay to, to refer um, not just to sex, but it refers to identity. That's the main issue. You know, we're not quibbling over words, but um, when that person has confused that their orientation is who they are, if we say that this is sinful behavior, well, the person doesn't even see this as behavior. It's who they are. Uh, so homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, gay, straight, bi actually shouldn't be used to describe people. It should be used to describe our experiences, our attractions, our desires, our temptations, our relationships, our actions. So sexuality is not who we are, but it's how we are. So don't start there. Don't use phrases like love the sinner, hate the sin, because they just hear us say, I hate you. Um, (laughs) But don't also feel like the need that you have to debate with people. That oftentimes is this tendency, like they ask us a question, they try to corner us too. You know, do you think this is sin? Well, even if I convince them that it was, they're still lost. So I want to deflect it to the more important questions as Jesus. He didn't answer every question. He often answered a question with a question and because he knew what question was more important. So I think the more important question is this, that I I would say, I know, I know you don't even, you don't even believe in God yet. So what does it matter to you right now? What God thinks is sin or not? The more important question is, does God exist? So good. Those questions about the existence of God can lead to questions and conversations about Jesus Christ that can point to conversations about salvation. And uh, so those are things that I would do. But what can you do? I mean, pray. We need to pray and fast. We need to uh, listen to those, you know, around us. Don't be afraid to listen to someone's story because listening to someone isn't the same thing as agreeing or affirming. I mean, what we say can agree or affirm their sinful behavior. So, for example, if they, you know, they're talking about their boyfriend and maybe, you know, at, um, at work and everyone else is saying, I'm so happy for you. I can't say I'm happy for you because that would be affirming their sin. But I could say, I see you're happy. That's different. Mm -hmm. And um, so, Mm. uh, and we can listen, but um, also live in ways that reflect Christ. Because what we want to do more than anything else is to show them what a life completely surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. Mm -hmm. We need to live out the reality of the gospel as we proclaim the truths of the gospel. Um, So those, you know, those are some things that we can do to reach out to the loved ones and friends and neighbors who identify as LGBTQ+. Yeah. 
I, I think what you've highlighted is really important too, because, and again, because of how we've kind of put sin on a scale, we go mm-hmm. homosexuality is the worst sin. So it's like, yeah. we've got to focus on that thing, but it's like, even if they weren't homosexual or bisexual or any, any sort of um, experience outside of God's design or any sort of mm-hmm. attraction outside of God's design, it's like, or I would just even think of myself, even if I mm. um, wasn't acting, even if I was living in line sex in God's design for sexuality, there would be still mm. so many other areas that have separated me from God. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's, it's not just that Jesus is just trying to make us heterosexual or I even think in your story, it's like you were walking with the Lord in prison and then God started to deal with your heart around sexual ethic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't this number one thing that God, was was working on in your heart there was other areas that he was shaping and i think that's important too as we as we preach the gospel that we're not having a standard of sin that maybe god doesn't have but we're also being discerning um with with what the holy spirit could be doing in somebody's life already and Mm -hmm. um and walking them through that um i do have some hot topic questions for you just as we wrap up here so yeah um, as you as you kind of mentioned, there's a lot of movements going on within the quote unquote Christian culture, um, yes. and I, I use air quotes on that Christian culture because some <laughs> of it is really not Christian. But I've heard um, heard some Christian again quote unquote Christian activists uh, use Romans one where it talks about natural versus unnatural mm. uh, relations, and they twist yep. that to believe that um or they would present that to to kind of make the statement that it would be unnatural for somebody who had heterosexual who was born as a heterosexual to act upon homosexual desires while mm-hmm. there could be those who are naturally uh have he- homosexual desires that's not sin for them to act on those uh those homosexual desires how tell me is that wrong and how is it wrong yeah, so it, I mean, a few things. Um, th- there's something that we call in um, in interpretation uh, anachronism. That means trying to apply a modern concept to an older document or an older kind of text or whatever. This, I'm, this is not even have to have to be a biblical text. Um, so it's trying to take a modern concept of today and um, say that the writers from 2000 years ago knew our modern concept. In other words, kind of this whole argument stems around this whole natural, well, a person is quote unquote, again, we're using uh, these air quotes, quote unquote, naturally um, heterosexual. Well, that concept wasn't even around 2000 years ago when Paul wrote Romans one, nor did, was the Roman, the church at Rome are familiar with that concept of, of someone that was, you know, had a, a homosexual orientation. Um, that's number one. Number two, it, it fails in doing what I believe is probably the most important step of reading the Bible. We need to do all the things that we normally do. We look at context and, you know, we, we look at, you know, the word meaning and, and we look at historical context. Now, now this is the thing, context, oftentimes people don't realize that there are different types of context. There's literary context, there's historical context. But the thing that is, that is really missing here by everyone that, that misinterprets the Bible is that they, they don't read the Bible canonically. That's a little bit different from the other forms of context. 
literary context, looking at the verses and chapters around that verse that was written. Historical context asks the question of when was this book written and who was it written to and studies that type of historical context. Canonical context is neither one of those, and it's actually looking at how this passage rests in the whole canon of scripture, all 66 books of the Bible, because because if we have a high view of scripture, we will know that all 66 books of the Bible are actually one unified witness, though written by different human authors in different times, they're tied together by the thread of the Holy Spirit. It's the same God, the same Holy Spirit that has guided these biblical writers over time to record God's word. So therefore, we can read it as one whole unified witness. Revisionists, people who don't, you know, who have this uh, a view, like, you know, like you say that remote, none of them hold to that view. They don't view, they, they believe that Paul wrote this book, Moses, and there's not, they're, they're really not tied together. Um, and so when we read it in that way, we will see that Paul in Romans 1, uh, from 18 onward, that's kind of after the introduction is Romans 1, verse 1 through 17, and then 18 through 32 is kind of another section where Paul is kind of laying it on. He's kind of condemning all the the unbel- mm-hmm. uh, unbelievers and the Gentiles and, and stuff. And then he goes to Romans 2, which then he's condemning the Jews. I mean, so he's like, we're all, yeah. we're all doomed. Yeah. <laughs> but he begins Romans 1, 18 through 32, um, talking about condemning idolatry. He begins there. And why is idolatry wrong? Well, he he specifically quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but 300, 400 years before the time of Jesus and before the time of Paul, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. So most of the New Testament writers read and uh, and quoted from the Greek Old Testament, which is also called the Septuagint, if people were mm-hmm. curious or wanted to know about that. Um So Paul alludes to eight different times in this whole section of Romans 1, 18-32, pointing back to the Greek translation of Genesis 1. And there's a reason for that, because Paul was building his argument, because you know he knew people are going to be like, well, what's wrong with idolatry? I mean, I'm not hurting anyone. The reason why idolatry is wrong is because it's against creation. It's against Genesis. It's against Genesis 1. Um, because as Paul says in Romans one, that, um, we began, began believing the lie and, uh, that, that we began worshiping the creature rather than the creator, right? The idols are actually created things, creatures, we're creatures as well. So the same creature is worshiping the creature, same as worshiping the same when we should be worshiping the creator, the other. Well, Paul being very logical, well, came up with the next logical step, not that homosexuality is the worst sin, but that kind of came, that flows really well with idolatry, not that they're directly linked. Sometimes people, um, other, in church history, they tried to make that link, but uh, basically it was just this linear of thinking, well, what else is kind of aligning with kind of just all of just depravity as a whole, because we're all depraved. Uh, but he chose just to use this the sin of homosexuality because similarly, just as idolatry is against creation, homosexuality is also against creation. And yes. instead of the creature worshiping the creature, when the creature should be worshiping the creator, it's a man having sex with a man, same having mm. sex with the same, when the same should be having sex with the other. So um, when you do a, a very thorough, deep, proper analysis of Romans 1, it's actually impossible to to see it as any other way. And that's because we're reading the Bible canonically. Well, I think you've done a great job of that in like five minutes. <laughs> you kind of... <laughs> that five? I felt like that was 10 or whatever. Well, I maybe well, yeah. 
I was talking really fast too. Yeah, you're doing great. You're doing great. So lastly, the last hot topic question, Jesus never talked about homosexuality, right? Yes, right. We hear that all the time. And actually yeah. pastors are even saying this uh, and they should know better. Well, Jesus was also silent about bestiality. He was also silent about incest. I mean, well, it's silent in the sense of we have no recorded, um, you know, in the gospels that he mentioned it. Um, however, we don't have everything that's recorded. I mean, John even wrote if everything was recorded that he did and the miracles that he did. Yeah. No books in the world will be able to, you know, contain all, all those things. And um, so th- that's one. Jesus is silent of, of other things. And as we know, that's a logical fallacy. Yes. Um, that silence, the, the, uh, it's called the argument of silence. We can't really make much of an argument of silence unless you have a little bit more to back it up. And actually, when we look for things to back it up, that actually supports the biblical view of sexuality. Why? I mean, I'll just ask, why was Jesus silent about bestiality? Well, no one questioned it in the first century Israel. Why was Jesus silent about incest? No one questioned it in first century Israel, so he didn't need to repeat it. And he knew that even the Pharisees knew, I mean, they had a correct view of bestiality and incest, that it's sin, so he didn't need to correct them. Let's go to this issue of homosexuality. There was no question in first century Israel that same-sex sex between men or women uh is wrong. And so Jesus, why why was he silent? Because he didn't need to correct them. And he definitely corrected wrong theology many, many times. And he didn't do that here. Um, And and I will admit that even that, even though it's kind of leaning in that direction, supporting it, it's not ironclad tight. But this is where we come back to um, Jesus other things where we read the Bible canonically. So we'll go to the other gospels like in, in Mark and, and Matthew, where Jesus was asked about, asked about divorce and Jesus there, he says his answer, you know, when the Pharisees was like, is it okay to divorce a woman in any situation? Right. I mean, they were having these silly arguments. Like if my wife burnt my dinner, can I divorce her? They actually were asking silly questions like that. And and some rabbis, rightly so, were like, no, you can't do that. I mean, only in, you know, in cases of, you know, infidelity or, or adultery right. that can you do that. But Jesus doesn't even mention any of those. And he knew that they were quibbling over things of the law. And you know what he did? He goes right to Genesis. He's like, you know, I'm not even going to talk about the law. I'm going to go to something that the law rests on, and that's creation. And so he goes to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he said, in the beginning, the creator made the male and female. The two shall become one flesh. What God has put together, let man not separate. And what we miss is that Jesus is quoting not only from Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh, but he also quotes from Genesis 1, that God made the male and female. But let's think about this. Jesus didn't have to bring up that God made the male and female. To answer the divorce question, all he needed to do was right. quote from Genesis 2.24, that God made that, that that the two shall become one flesh. What God has put together, what God has put together, let man not separate. But Jesus, being God, was not only schooling them on why divorce is wrong, he was schooling them on the def- definition of marriage. So he goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and said that God made them male and female, what God has put together, and the two shall become one flesh. So linking Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, um, marriage to actually even the image of God, that that passage where that comes mm. out of that, that, that God made them male and female. And 
So uh, there really, Jesus is saying that there is no marriage apart from male and female. And the last thing is for us to recognize what is a proper understanding, a high view of scripture that all words are God's words. Yes. And Jesus is God. And even more so, he is the living word. So if there's mm-hmm. any passage, whether in the old or in the new, that condemns same-sex relationships because this is God's word and because Jesus is God and because Jesus is a living word, if there's anything in scripture that condemns same-sex relationships, it's equivalent to being Jesus's own words. Absolutely. And, and I even think about how Jesus pointed them back to the writings of Moses because He's saying Moses was writing about me, you know what I mean? And so it's like to try to turn Moses against Jesus and Jesus against Paul is like, it's not going to work. Yep. That's a a low view of scripture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Yuan, this has been such a joy and been so refreshing. And I feel like we got like a hermeneutics 101 (laughs) introduction (laughs) to hermeneutics today. This has been so good. Um, How can our, how can our listeners kind of stay in touch with your work and, and just follow along with what, uh, what you're doing? Yeah, my speaking ministry uh, and writing ministry is at ChristopherYuan.com. And then, but my new project, uh, it's called The Holy Sexuality Project. It's a 12 lesson video series for parents and their teens because so many parents today are uh, just scrambling for resources. And the majority of resources out there are for youth groups. Not necessarily a bad thing, even though some of these. Um, resources just focus upon, you know, what is God's no abstinence, which is, again, it's that's part of the story. But others are kind of just love, just do whatever our gay friends tell us, um, mm-hmm. and not really pointing them to the beautiful, life-changing cross of Jesus Christ. And um, so... I I, I wanted to make sure that that Jesus Christ was really lifted high in this series. And the goal is to equip parents to put them back in the driver's seat and to actually foster conversations that will continue on after these 12 lessons are finished and even on after high school and into college. Because that, I think, the key to stemming the tsunami of misinformation today with our youth as they're drowning in this tsunami, I think the answer... Um, are, are for parents to step up and do the job that God has ordained them to do. So if any of you guys are interested, that you can just find that at holysexuality.com. Just holysexuality.com and you can find more information. You can put in your email and your name and get more information and sign up. Uh, and maybe, you know, probably actually in, in next few weeks, it will probably, it will be released. We're very, very excited. That's um, awesome. There's 36 videos and each video is going to have some really nice quality animation that we've had a team of 32 animators, illustrators, sound engineers working on this project. And Fantastic. actually many of them uh, were a part of producing videos for the Bible project. So if you know the quality Great. of that, uh, yeah, we're looking at sure. you know, the same quality as this. That awesome. is exciting. I'm I'm looking forward to accessing that and you, mm-hmm. you know, sitting down with our kids too. That's yeah. amazing. Amen. Yeah. Like we yes. said, we'll make sure everything's in the show notes, but, it, but again, this has just been such an honor and a privilege to sit down and talk with you. So thank you so much for making time for us. Oh man. It's been an honor and privilege for me, Brian and, and Bonnie. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening to the union podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at the union For more information, please visit our website 
theunionmovement.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Union Movement.